0: So as we look through this, again, this becomes difficult passages. And we talked about this last week. These are difficult issues we struggle with. Now, last week, what we did is we, we started and we developed a biblical theology of who God is. And we started off and we used as kind of our central passage uh, the book of Exodus, chapter 34, in which God reveals himself to Moses. As Moses says, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And what God did is he put his hand over Moses' face because he recognized that Moses could not see the full blast of God's glory and live. Uh, the Bible Project, in their beautiful and wonderful passage, uh, their video on holiness, explains it in a very wonderful way because they explain God is kind of like the sun. Now, all. All any kind of imageries that we try to do to make of God is always going to fall far short of the real thing because he is completely other. But it's a helpful illustration. He is kind of like the sun. From the sun, his goodness brings forth life. We couldn't have life without the sun. But if we tried to stare at it with our weak eyes or if we tried to get too close to it, We would burn up. Our eyes would burn up. We as a, a people would burn up getting too close to it. Why? Because there's something evil about the sun? No. But because it's so good and we are so weak by comparison. And so one of the things as we look at God's glory is so big and we are so finite, we can't take it all in who God is. And so even in that, in that revelation, he had to shield Moses' eyes to a degree, uh, to, to hide. But in this is what he was able to reveal to him. In verse Exodus 34, verse 6, it says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands of, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, the children's children, to the third and fourth generation. And so we see there this glorious paradox, a tension of such goodness that we can't comprehend. Now, keep in mind, we as humans try to wed this tension sometimes in our human governments. We try to be governments of compassion and yet justice. And yet what we see over and over again is the complete incapacity of humans to create institutions which do so perfectly. But we recognize there is that need for both compassion and mercy alongside justice within there. It is part of what makes God so glorious and good. He is compassionate and merciful more than you could possibly understand. But part of what makes him so good is he does not wink at evil. He is a holy God. And his holiness and his justice demand that evil be dealt with. And our hearts actually long for that. When we see absolute chaos break into this world, when we see things like wars of aggression take place, when we see the innocent destroyed uh, because of the... The appetites of the hungry and the powerful, our hearts cry out, We want to see justice. And we see God weds us in ways with a patience and a perfection that we can't comprehend. And so last week we saw that that is the overall tenor by which we saw played out so gloriously and lovely as we looked at the Old Testament. It's easy for us just to retreat into the New Testament with Jesus. And certainly we see Jesus is the fullest revelation of who God is. But we see it equally powerfully displayed in the Old Testament as well. To read the Old Testament and to see how God reveals himself is to see a God of such incredible mercy that it's, it's difficult for humans to fathom. And so we move towards the end and in a the text that I highlighted was the book of Jonah. Because what we saw in the book of Jonah, we see this prophet of Israel is called to go out to Nineveh, the capital of one of the most wicked empires the world has ever seen, Assyria. They are brutal beyond imagination. I would absolutely make you sick to your stomach to read some of their descriptions and some of the things that they gloried in, in defeating the people. It was wicked and it was grotesque and it was evil. But yet God called Jonah to go and to proclaim to them that God's justice will demand they be dealt with unless they repent. And so Jonah didn't want to go. And we saw last week, why is the reason he didn't want to go? It's because he knew he said, this is why I didn't want to go. Because he saw that they repented and God relented from his destruction. And he said to you, and this is a Jew. One who knew, a prophet, one who knew the fullest revelation of how God had displayed and revealed himself in the Old Testament. He said, This is why I want to do it, because I knew you were a God who was gracious and merciful, slow to anger. I knew you would do this. And so, knowing the Old Testament is to know of God of incredible mercy. And what do we see God's response in Jonah chapter 4, verse 10? He says this. I lost my glasses and I got to find them to read. Um, And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in night and perished. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from the left and much cattle? So what do we see there? A God who has incredible passion." compassion. So this idea of an angry god who just wants to wipe people out doesn't fit the narrative. It doesn't fit it at all. In fact, if we were to go back and look through the narrative of the Bible with faith seeking understanding that it's not that of an angry god trying to just vent his anger upon a people, but rather it is a God who creates beauty and glory and wonder and an extraordinarily wicked humanity who comes in and sides in open rebellion with the powers of evil and seeks to dethrone and violate and contaminate God's good creation over and over and over and over again. It is a story of God reclaiming that which is his. And as we move into this week, this is the first point that I think it is absolutely crucial for us to see as we move forward to understanding God and how he expresses his judgment and justice as revealed in the Old Testament. Is that God is the sovereign God... He is the sovereign God with the right to reclaim that which is His. He is the sovereign God that has the right to claim that which is His. This creation, and this is extro- extremely important that we see in the very, very beginning. Everything that was made in this world, in this very universe, was made by God and for God, it is His. And that has continued to be the case. There is nothing that continues to exist that isn't made by His power and is ultimately accountable to Him. And that includes each and every person. You see, we love to highlight the autonomous self. I am my own person. I get to make all the decisions for me. But here, let's do a little thought experiment for you. Did you get to choose and decide when you were born? No. And ultimately, though I know we try to take this power back from God, you will not decide when you die. You were made by God. Every moment you awake, every breath you take is decided Before you were born by God. You are his creation. He is your sovereign. Whether you live in the bronze age or in 2023. You are not humanity is not broken away from the sovereignty of God. We are his creation made by him and for him. And he has the right, and indeed his righteousness declares, the obligation to reclaim that which is his. And to hold it accountable to his good standards. We like to to minimize, we like to minimize the sin within this world. But the story of the Bible is that it isn't an angry God, but an extraordinarily wicked and hard-hearted humanity. This is in no way about Calvinism versus Arminianism. So I know I don't want this quote to steer in that direction because both would agree in the point that I'm trying to make here. But in John Piper's book, Let the Nations Be Glad, there's a a wonderful little footnote that had a huge impact on me. And in Let the Nations Be Glad, he talks of a conference speaker of a missionary who started out in missions. And he said at this conference, when I began in missions, I said to myself, I can never be a missionary if I believed in predestination. But then he said, after years in the mission field, I've come to the belief that after having seen the hardness and the wickedness of human heart, I can never be a missionary unless I believed in predestination. Now, my point isn't to talk about Calvinism versus Arminianism, but to rather to say all we have to do is to look and see the hardness and the wickedness of the human heart that is before us. The Bible holds nothing back within there. This isn't a story of a God who is absent of patience, but a God of such patience that he waited for the sins of the Amorite to be complete. We saw that right in Genesis chapter 15. He said to Abraham, I'm not going to let you come into the promised land yet. Your people are not going to take possession of it. Instead, they're going to go and they're going to serve. They're going to be enslaved by the Egyptians for 430 years until the sins of the Amorites are complete. So in other words, he's saying you can't do this right now because there's going to be a time in which the Canaanites are... Their wickedness, just like Sodom and Gomorrah, is going to demand that I act in justice and judgment to condemn the wickedness. And I'm going to do it. And I'm going to hold off, because of my patience, 430 years. So that when I bring my justice and my wickedness, it will be the perfect time. That is not a story of an angry God, but rather of a merciful God, but also a God in which all stand before him under account. It is not unseemly for us to expect that we have to stand before our local magistrates to be accountable, and yet we know that they are imperfect. God is the only true one who is absolutely perfect and therefore has the absolute right to hold each and every person accountable to him, whether that person is five minutes old or 500 years old. Every person was made by him and will stand accountable to him. And they will be asked, where, what have you done? And that's a question that, frankly, all of us crumble before. I know I do. My hope isn't that I didn't deserve the wickedness of the Amorites, for in fact, I do. My heart is every bit as wicked. And the amazing thing, and I highlighted this, isn't that there are some people judged and others not. What's amazing is that all are not judged. All are not brought to immediate and swift just judgment and justice. One of the most famous sermons ever given was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God by Jonathan Edwards. Now, it's worth noting that Jonathan Edwards, it's kind of funny that it's a famous sermon because he himself actually didn't like it. He didn't like that sermon. He thought it was far too angry. But scholars, as they've analyzed it, they said it's really kind of a misnomer that it really should be called sinners in the hands of a gracious God. Because when you look and you read that sermon, what it's pointing out is that we are all sinners, all deserving judgment. But what we see is God is gracious and merciful in his patience. It's merciful and patience that we are not wiped out immediately. But rather in his grace and in his patience. He is given opportunities for repentance. We're turning to him by faith. Now, some of you may be saying, hey, what's going on here? This isn't like you. I'm not a hellfire and brimstone preacher. That's not my typical um, way I do things. That's why I let Paul preach every so often. Let him go do it. But the truth is, we will all stand before him. And I think that's why this makes us feel a little uncomfortable. Because deep down, we know we deserve judgment. But the grace of God has provided to us so that the judgment due us was placed on jesus christ though we deserve this sword just as much that sword though it is withheld from us was not spared on his beloved eternal son jesus christ so we have hope We have this wonderful hope. We can look at the wickedness of the world and cry out against it. We can look at the injustices that we see in the world of children and vulnerable women who are taken into prostitution, taken out of their countries and brought in, drugged up and sent out. We can look at the horrors of world in which really rich people corrupt and use children as slave labor to make their goods. We can look and cry out in a world in where you see the powerful victimize the the weak and still cry out with longing for justice. Why? Because we know, number one, that justice will come. But number two, we have hope and mercy from that justice through Jesus Christ. So we see a God who has in no way held his hand back on justice leaving him perfect and good and able to judge, but also a God who has provided a pathway and a way of mercy to us. So, that's important for us to look into. Now, why is that important? Why do I begin? Why do I kind of start off the gate with this? Well, I'm about to go into a section where I'm going to make the case that the conquest was a lot less bloody than we imagine. But here's the thing. Even if it was as bloody as we imagine, even if it was as bad, God is still innocent within there. In our finite minds, we, we struggle with this, and that's part of the the, the what we see in Job, right? In the book of Job. He didn't understand. His finite understanding couldn't do it. God doesn't give us all the information we need to understand how things have happened, but he has given us sufficient un- information to trust him, to see as he has revealed his character, we can trust him even when we don't understand. Now, that's important because... We don't want to diminish the struggles, right? God doesn't diminish the struggles. He understands that we are finite, that we struggle with these sort of things. And so uh, the great uh, ancient um, church father, Anselm, came with the saying, it's faith-seeking understanding. He has given us all the tools we need to have by faith to trust him. but it's okay that we're seeking understanding alongside that. He's big enough to handle our questions, though he in no way promises that he will give us complete and utter answers. Sometimes we are too small to understand them, and sometimes what he is calling us to do is to simply trust him. Now, with that in line, let me make a little bit of a case here that the conquest was a little less bloody than what we often imagine. Now, again, I'm working, um, the sources I'm working through here, as I mentioned last week, Paul Copan's God and the Moral, uh, is God a Moral Monster, Uh, Joshua Ryan Butler, uh, Skeletons in God's Closet, Uh, and also Richard Hess's uh, excellent commentary on the book of Joshua. And so when you look at some of these, these, what I'm speaking here, I want to emphasize is not someone just trying to placate and try to figure out how to make this more palatable for an audience of 2023, but rather it is genuine, real scholars like Kenneth Kitchens, like Richard Hess, who have been working through this to understand it, Right? And one of the first things that we have to acknowledge is the difficulty of understanding the way rhetoric and language works in this time. Keep in mind, this this is late Bronze Age. And so this isn't just a few hundred years ago. This is thousands of years ago. And so just as if you were to take somebody from the late Bronze Age, and let's say we can make some sort of, you know, something out of Star Wars or Star Trek where they could translate easily and understand the words, there would still be all kinds of issues and difficulties we would have with communication because we have all these colloquial phrases that we use. Um, My wife, as many of you know, is from Bulgaria. And so English is her second language. And I am a proud boy of the South. I am from Oklahoma. And so we invent a lot of language, right? So not just, I mean, there's a lot of language that's weird to go up to New York or to other places where people would say, I have no idea what that expression means. It's the same thing in biblical times. There's all kinds of expressions that, that we need to use to help us understand the context. So, for example, if you were watching with me the Texas Rangers play the Colorado Rockies, you may have said, man, we just annihilated the Rockies. Now, what do I mean by that? Do I mean that we actually, you know took them with some sort of ray that completely decomposed them as matter to where they no longer existed? No. Am I saying we even killed them? No. By God's grace, they're still alive. Now, they're still playing really bad baseball, but they're still alive to play it, right? What I mean by that is, instead, they were dominant. The Rangers were dominant over them. Now, when we look at much of the war language in the ancient Near East, and this is true not just of Israel, but of all the ancient Near East, the way they communicated war and battle, and even this thing called ban, which is an Old Testament term for when there was a battle that was supposed to go out in which it was essentially a holy war in which everything was to be dedicated to the Lord. The Hebrew word there is harem. Um, Ban is another word for that um, the often used exaggerated language. And I'll show proof of exactly that that we're going to see. And, so, and also there was expressions in which it like, hey, go wipe them out. And the idea is, hey, everything that is in there, I want you to destroy. And so they would use certain expressions to say, hey, this is to be a complete destruction that were going in there, such as "kill all, kill everybody that was in there. That was, a, that was a marching order for go take no prisoners. Right? If I went to, to you know a basketball team said, take no prisoners, what am I trying to say there? Beat them thoroughly. Right? So, how how can I say that? Well, let's take a look at Joshua. Joshua chapter 10, verse 40. So Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country and the Negeb the lowlands, and the slopes, and all their kings. And he left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. And Joshua struck from Kadesh Barnea, as far as Gaza, and as far as the country of Goshen, as far as Gibeon. And Joshua captured all the kings and their land at one time, because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Now, when you look at that, and you see the language Devoted destruction, all that breathed. There was left none remaining. uh, Captured all the kings in their land at one time. Well, let's move to the end of Joshua. The end of the book of Joshua, chapter 23, verse 12. And this is God speaking to the people as they're moving into the land of Israel, right? He's giving them a warning. What is this warning about? For if you turn your back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they will shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this earth good ground that the Lord your God has given you. Now, what is God doing? What God is doing in this parable, right, and in many ways what this is. You see these wicked people that infested God's land. He is removing them and he is bringing in his people that have been redeemed by his name. It's a parable for what he is ultimately going to do. Now, we live, in many ways, in a now and not yet aspect of this. We have been redeemed within this world. He is moving forward, taking back this world, but we live amongst a world filled with brokenness, right? And so in many ways, there's even a foreshadowing, in essence, of the church, to a degree, that's going on here. But what I want to highlight and what I'm making out is, here what we see is an exaggerated language to say, hey, the people of Israel obeyed what God had done. They obeyed and they came in and they were part of what God was doing to move the people out of his land that he was reclaiming, that was His God's sovereign right to do, to move them out of his land to bring their people in. But yet what we see, if we were to look at that first passage, we say, wow, that was a bloodbath. Now, that isn't to say there wasn't battles fought. There certainly was. But it's not the, you know, complete extermination that our imaginations go to. We see that quite clearly from, um, from chapter 23. Now, is, is, is this, can we say, well, can we not trust the Bible then? No, that is not at all, because all the people of that time knew and understood the language So this was in no way anything that's being deceptive. Take a look again. Another passage, Joshua chapter 11, verse 22. And there was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod's did some remain. So, okay, so that seems like they were pretty well taken out. Well, just in a couple of chapters later, we have... And I love Caleb. This is Caleb going to... Joshua, Caleb was one of the original two spies with with Joshua. And just listen to how feisty this guy is. Now, keep in mind, he's old, right? Which he's going to describe. Joshua chapter 14, verse 12. And now behold, the Lord has kept me alive. This is Caleb speaking. Just as he said, these 45 years since the time the Lord spoke his word to Moses while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now behold, I am this day 85 years old. 85 years old, I am still as strong today as I was in the day of Moses sent me. My strength now is my, is my strength then for war and for going and coming. So now give me this hill country which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities that may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. What do we see there? Okay, this is following that. Now, what do we see This. What I'm making the case for you is this. What has been used has been exaggerated language. Now, will I die for that? No, I won't. That's why we begin with the understanding of who God is. Are there very good scholars who disagree with this? Absolutely, there are. But this is a case that has been made to me that I, I am convinced of, and that helps me. We see this as well with the Amalekites. Now, keep in mind, what did we look, go back to chapter 15? It seems like they're completely wiped out. Well, just in a few chapters in 1 Samuel chapter 27, we see that David is going to be dealing with the Amalekites, And uh, once again, in 1 Samuel 30, uh, David is once again going to be dealing with the Amalekites. Now, move forward, 250 years, Hezekiah is still having problems with this tribe, the Amakalites. And then you go forward almost a thousand years from, um, from when they first came on the scene in the book of Esther. The people have come back. Persia is now over, uh, over the country. And what do you see? Who is the big bad? Haman who's an agite in other words he's an amykelite see in other words god kind of knew what he was talking about and trying to say hey these are guys are going to be a perpetual enemy who's trying to destroy you now The other thing that we point out is when we think of cities, we often think of cities as kind of like what we think of now, Dallas, Fort Worth, or we think of, you know, Nineveh that came in. This was, you know, hundreds of years later, which is a much different capital of that time. We think of cities like Jerusalem during the time of Jesus, but this is late Bronze Age. Cities were not urban metropolitans. They were actually military outposts. And so when he attacks Jericho, Jericho probably had was almost entirely combatants. It was a military outpost. And kind of the story of Rahab actually forms that because in these military outposts, what they would have is they would have these taverns for people who were traveling to and for. they They'd be able to stay and gather. And it was a great place for the military to be able to try to keep track of these. And often these taverns were ran by prostitutes and their families. Right, just like Rahab, and so probably the only non-combatants in Jericho was Rahab and her family, and so these attacks on there were most likely, and the the word Malek, king of those in this time, was often for the kind of the military generals over that region. So this isn't necessarily the people going out and attacking, uh, you know. Dallas-Fort Worth. That's not exactly what it was. Now, having said that, let's move back to another important feature. And I'm going to end with this. And this is extremely important. Because let's say everything I just said is wrong. Let's go to another important factor. What you see here is, is a God- who is caring for his children. We see a God who is deeply caring for his children. When he called Abraham, he said, I am going to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. Why? Because Abraham is going to be the vehicle through which he will display his salvation. And he chose Abraham, not because of his greatness. He chose the people of Israel, not because they were a military powerhouse or somebody that was incredible. He actually chose them because they were weak. And keep in mind, as they're going into the Canaanites, what was the first report from the very first spies? We can't touch these people. They're scary. We got to flee from them. This isn't. A big group of mean bullies coming and picking on these weak little defenseless cities. This is a small, insignificant people that is absent of people, that is absent of technology, that is absent of professional armies, of a history of warring. They're going against some of the greatest military forces of that time. And God is showing his judgment... Using his children and also showing his desire to protect his people. Showing his faithfulness to those who cling to him in faith. That's incredibly important for us as a people as we live in a world that is becoming ever more hostile. Not because we believe that God is mobilized, going to mobilize us and... And, and send us out to fight some people group. That's not at all what's going to happen. But we can extraordinarily be confident. That when God sees his people suffering and struggling. He is not indifferent. And we saw this in the book of Revelation. We saw that every harm that came to his children. He knew and he saw. And ultimately he comes against all the wickedness and the injustice. And part of his coming down is him paying back the world for what they did to his children, to his people. God cares deeply about his children. And this kind of goes back and this brings us first full circle to Amalek's. We see them first come into the scene in Exodus chapter 17. And it says this, Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. And so Moses and Joshua said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill and the staff of God in my hand. And so what you see, the people are coming out. They're very vulnerable. they're, They're thirsty. They have had no water. They're weak. They've never fought a war at this point. This is their first actual battle, and I'll talk about that in a minute. And rather than showing them any kind of mercy, this people comes out and tries to take advantage of their vulnerability to destroy them. And so Joshua did as Moses said to him, and he fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up into the top of the hill. And whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary so that they took a stone and they put it underneath him and they sat on it. And while Aaron and Hur held up his hands on one side and then the other on the other side, so his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. And then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in the book and recite it in the ears of Joshua. That I may utterly blot out the memory of Amalek under heaven. And Moses built an altar and he called the name of it. The Lord is my banner saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. And the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And this, this played out. The, the Amaleks continued on from that point, And you see him mentioned multiple times. One, two, three, four, five times in the book of Judges in which they are attacking and fighting with Israel. Well, I just already mentioned that their history, they continue on all the way until the book of Esther. They're trying to exterminate and take, care, take advantage of a vulnerable people within there. And God is not indifferent of that, towards, of that hostility towards his people. He is not indifferent towards that. But here's my final point. When you see this battle in Exodus 17, this is the first time you see God uses the people in battle. Up until this point, he has always been the one who's done all of the fighting. He brought the plagues on the people of Egypt. He drowned them in uh, their armies in the Red Sea. Everything that they've come against, they have done nothing. This is the first time in which God uses them. And what is the emphasis in here? That though he is using them, ultimately their strength comes from the Lord. Now, why is that relevant for us? Let's bring this all together. God is a sovereign Lord reclaiming all that is his. Now, it's important for us to understand people have used that theology to try to justify ridiculous wars like the Crusades. And they try to use that very illegitimately. And all you have to do is read the Old Testament itself to know that that is not a legitimate application. There was only certain places and certain times in which God called his people to actually fight in this way. That is completely illegitimate to use in any other standpoint. All of life, because it is from God, is sacred. He alone has that right. Now, however, what we see in the New Testament is there is still very much a warfare that is taking place, but it is a spiritual warfare. It has always been a spiritual warfare, a way in which God is dislodging and casting judgments upon the evil of this world and the false gods of this world. And so what we see in New Testament, there's still very much warfare language. We see this in Second. Uh, uh, Corinthians chapter 10 where Paul says this for though we walk in the flesh we are not waging war according to the flesh for our weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh but have divine power to destroy strongholds we destroy arguments and every holy every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and we take every thought captive to obey God We see in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, Finally, brothers, be strong in the Lord and strengthen his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities, against cosmic powers ever over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day, having done all to stand firm." Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and the shoes of your feet having put on the readiness given to the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take a helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end... Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for the saints and also for me that the words may be given to me in my opening of my mouth, boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought. Now, if we're to take this warfare language, particularly Ephesians chapter 6, we often try to dissect that in Ephesians, but divorce it from its Old Testament theology, If we were to understand that, what he is actually clothing here is the armor of the Messiah, the armor of Jesus. And what he is saying in this armor of Jesus, and we see it particularly in the book of Isaiah, it is going out into the darkness to reclaim that which is his. What is Paul saying? Just as the battles that won us our freedom was completely fought by Christ, You were not saved because you had some sort of fight with the enemy and you won and therefore got to join God's side. God looked at you and said, you are mine. And by faith, you were saved. That was the battle. But as he has brought his people to himself, as he has clothed them in his righteousness, he has called us, To go out into all the nations and all the world, not with violence, but understanding the true nature of the warfare is spiritual. To have the same armor of the Messiah. In other words, we are to fight and to reclaim or to be part of God's reclaiming that which is his in the same way Christ did. Which is ultimately a love to the point of shedding our own lives, not other people's lives. Is through a spiritual battle of prayer, of seeking God, of trusting in him, and going out and proclaiming the good news, the readiness of the gospel, to have our feet shod with the readiness of the gospel. God is in the process of reclaiming his world. And he has called us, just as he called the people of Israel to be part of it, But it's not through our strength, it's not through our determination, not even through our resources. He is the one who has taken it back. God has called us to join with what He is already doing. The question becomes, however, are we setting back, trying to simply judge God? Simply trying to say, God, how do I feel about you? God, what do I think about you? God, what do I think about this mission you're doing? We want to do everything we can to own our autonomy. The gospel calls us to surrender all that is ours and to follow him by faith, to trust in him. It's okay if we struggle. I've struggled. I've had doubts. I've wrestled with this. That's okay. God's big enough to handle this. But ultimately, we come to the place where we recognize he is God and we are not. We submit to him. He does not submit to us. By grace as His Holy Spirit is at work in you, are you submitting to Him? Is He your Lord? Are you following Him in obedience? Are you seeking to go into this world through your power or through His? Are you trusting in yourself, in your righteousness, or are you trusting in the righteousness of Jesus Christ? These are hard questions the good news is you don't work through him alone. God and his spirit is at work, drawing, him, drawing us to himself. That is our hope, to throw ourselves upon his grace and his mercy and trust, as he has revealed himself, that his mercy and his grace is sufficient. There's nothing more we need. Why don't you throw yourself upon that grace today? Father, we thank you. You are you are in many ways, as one writer has expressed, you're the God we don't understand. And that's a good thing because I'm an idiot. I don't want a God I can understand. I want a God who's bigger than me. And you are that God. Not because I need you to be, but because that's who you are. Because that's the truth. What amazes me in this is that you would show me mercy. You would show any of us mercy. Father, enable us to rejoice in that. Be thankful for that. And Father, I pray, Lord, as we wrestle with these very difficult concepts and hard things that your Spirit would not allow us to remain in very thin descriptions and answers, but rather in your grace and in your glory, you would just open our hearts that we might see you in your goodness and in your wonder, that we might, by faith, receive your love and your grace. Be with us now, in Jesus' name.